So like we'll have a hypothesis and want to do something new with some new technology. We try and remove ourselves from the thought experiment in a way that means, you know, we can be quite practical and pragmatic. You have to give people space to make mistakes if you want to have innovation. Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Thinking Leader. Marcus, who do we have joining us today? Who do we have today? A man I've been chasing for a while and he's eventually joining us, which is great. So we have Oliver Yonchev, who is the managing director of Social Chain. If you don't know who they are, I suggest you look them up. But they were a startup that grew to a 750 million revenue public company with 1,400 plus people operating across 21 locations. He is now the co-founder, along with Stephen Bartlett, and the CEO of Flight Story, a new service platform introducing communication at the forefront of what's possible. And for over a decade, Oliver has been at the forefront of digital, social, and creative services, helping guide the management teams of the world's most successful companies. Check this out. Amazon, Apple, Coca-Cola, TikTok, Twitch, Disney, oh, wait. I've heard and of some Uber. Of yeah. Oliver, it is great to have you here today. Welcome. Yeah, really good to be here, Jen. I'm looking forward to speaking. Excellent. That's wonderful. It is. And I know you've been doing a lot of talking today. So let's just kick off with, how are you? Uh, good. Um, you know, it's, what time is it? 5.15 here. We're in the middle of launching lots of things. We're a very ambitious business, um, which the responsibility of... Um, of mine often falls in communicating what we're doing and that involves creating lots of content. And um, yeah, I am at the point at the end of the day where I am incredibly fatigued with my own voice. <laughs> you guys make content, <laughs> you understand. Um, but other than that, life is good, I'm blessed. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I wanna jump right off from the start. I was looking at Flight Stories website and you have a, a, a statement on there that is that is one of my mantras uh, that that I talk about in in my last book. Change is the only constant, and I, I'm curious why is that front and center on your on your website? Yeah, I I think um, you know when we started Flight Story, um, our, our guiding principles were kind of three things. One, what are we good at? It's probably a good starting place. What value can we create in the world? That was a starting place. The other was a reflection of previous endeavors. You know, where did we gain advantages? What did we do well? What did we do not so well? And then the final was opportunity. And the, the really interesting space for us, the previous business social chain was very much a benefactor of social media becoming increasingly important in the world. You know, it's changed the way business is done. It's changed the way we communicate. It's changed the fabric of society. And if I think of the probably catalyst moments throughout the history, social media would be up there. It's pretty up there in terms of how it's uh, changed lots of things. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and, and we've reflected a lot on that. And, and for me, 
Um, change is not a word people like. It's intimidating. It's confusing. Um, and actually, if you reverse engineer that, change is always a place of opportunity. Where there are unknowns, someone has to go and figure out what the knowns are. So for me, starting a business, it was um, it, it's uh, a quite a fulfilling place to operate at the forefront of change. And I would say if I look at the macro environment right now, and if you think of these big moments, whether it was COVID, whether it's this new domain or this next reiteration of the Internet Web 3, whether it's technology more broadly, where it's AI, all the developments that are happening right now, the rate of change is truly profound. If we zoomed out for a minute, you would see this and it would seem like a blip in the universe. Like the way I described this, a year ago, no one had heard the word chat GPT. <laughs> now you can't go online or hundreds and hundreds of millions of people are now using chat GPT. A year ago, the word anyone understood. So for me, that that is a very rich territory for anyone to operate under. And I think it's one rife with opportunity. And fundamentally, we are a marketing and communication business. And, you know, I think it's a really good anchor point to help organizations figure out what do they do when all this change happens. How does AI change Marcom in your mind? Oh, that's a loaded question. I think, I think AI changes everything for, for a number of reasons. AI is not a new thing. Um, you know, ever since science fiction models, since, you know, the Ray Kurzweil uh, singularity idea, man and machine at some point were headed on a clash, <laughs> a crash to come together. Um, I think what's really been profound about the last year is the real world application of AI. What started with, um, you know, very much how do these language models benefit us in our day to day tools? And my view a year ago was these things are really cool. And as a business, if we can be 10 times more efficient as a consequence of removing administrative tasks, tasks that take time, if AI can make us more efficient, that's a good thing. Then I started to like rethink my entire philosophy on the role of AI as you start to see more and more people developing. So you're starting to see like before it was like, oh, it's going to be an aid. It's going to be an aid to support an industry. Now I'm like, it's going to replace certain industries, right? I start yeah. to, when you start to see these things develop. And then the bit for me that is kind of the unknown unknown in the change equation is what does all of this mean for society? Because there is a ton of unintended consequences. We talk about the ethics of AI. What does this mean? You know, a few days ago, Elon Musk um, and Steve, Steve Wozniak. Wozniak. Yeah. yeah. They come out and say, you know, which I also think is a little hypocritical, if I'm being honest, but they're saying... <laughs> yeah, just, just to exactly. clear that. Everybody stop. Everybody stop doing what you're doing and let us figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah everybody stop doing the thing that we've poured billions of dollars into doing. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of a little hypocritical. However, um, I do think that their concerns are somewhat probably genuine because I think yeah. they're recognizing, well, this is changing things very quickly. Um, and there are, you know, there are so many new regulatory considerations, even just take something like IP, you know, right now we have governance that says, if you create something, I can't steal from you, but I can be inspired from you. And those distinctions are somewhat clear, not perfect. Um, you start to extrapolate and go, well, in a generated world that is powered by machine learning, 
what does that mean for IP? Those distinctions have got very, very narrow from inspiration to stealing, right? So suddenly, right, you get artists like saying, you know, that 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 uh, you know, some of these 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 graphic AIs are stealing their styles, you know, and stuff, and they they are based on the input of actual artists. So where's the line, like you say? Yeah, well, th this is all built on real input. And, you know, I, I think everyone from regulators, governments, builders, entrepreneurs, I think everyone has to pay attention. And it's very easy to get caught into the mindset of these things are fads because of the, the way in which everybody has sort of gone all in and really enthusiastic yeah. about these new possibilities. It. So it's very easy to trivialize it. Um, however, I would say this feels different to previous movements in a way where um, if the biggest cost to society right now is intelligence, you know, hiring people, developing skills, when that cost is almost eradicated to zero or vastly reduced, that changes the entire system. That changes the way we think about economic models. That changes the way we think about business. So a long way of saying, how does it affect Marcom? Uh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Everything. So what, what this is all bringing, really, is, the, is this word disruption. And, and you talked about change and how that scares people. And disruption scares people as well. And the field we're in, we talk a lot about deliberate disruption. So we try mm -hmm. and help people to be disruptive. And that's often seen more of a sort of young people, Gen Z type of game where and it, and it alienates other markets and other individuals. But as we're seeing, you know, you have to disrupt yourself because if you don't, you are going to be disrupted by something. And as quick as we've seen ChatGPT grow, you know, Chat grow and how that's affected people. What are you seeing and what, where are you helping with the flight story capability of bringing disruption in as a core capability and helping people really understand the power of being able to disrupt. Yeah, I really like what you're saying there about you guys being really intentional with disruption because I think it's a loaded word, right? To your mm -hmm. point, it comes with many preconceived conceptions about what it means. Um, and it's quite an aggressive word when you say yeah. disruption. I, if I think of most things in my life, I don't want them to be disruptive. You know, it's kind of good. So I can understand that. Uh, I, I can understand that sort of initial reaction. My view on disruption is you have to think a little more holistically about disruption. Disruption happens all the time in micro moments. So then there's certain times in history where disruption truly changed a lot of things. And I think we're at one of those sort of catalyst moments when you think of machine learning, blockchain technology, just, just all of these things um, sort of conflating at the same time. Um, what I would say where our role and responsibility is, our first foundation is trying to learn and understand about these emerging technologies. And really stress test them. It's not about being naive. And, and you mentioned there before about young people. I think the reason young people are seen as disruptors is because they're often naive. They're not beaten with a life stick. You know, they don't know better. And I genuinely believe, yeah. I, I, I believe in something called the curse of knowledge. And I think through experience, you gather knowledge. But I do believe it can also be a curse. Like Absolutely. That's something we teach all the time is curse of knowledge. Yeah, curse yeah. of knowledge, um, ego, all of these things come into play and actually stop you being a disruptor. Um, the way I tend to think our job and our role is probably not too dissimilar to, to you guys is we have to understand and learn these technologies. Um, and I always think an organization is really successful if it leaves 20% room for doing new things to evolve, to adapt. 
Um, so we pay a lot of attention. We try stuff. We encourage. And as an organization, we actually ensure that we show we value um, experimentation. So we don't ever reward anyone for like having a really good outcome to trying something new. Well, we do. But like generally, we reward people that try new stuff. Um, but I love try, that. Yeah, we try and be pragmatic about also being, you know, very uh, unattached to ideas. So like we'll have a hypothesis and want to do something new with some new technology. We'll try it, but we try not to, um, we try and remove ourselves from the thought experiment in a way that means, you know, we can be quite practical and pragmatic. Well, you know, you have to, you have to give people space to make mistakes if you want to have innovation. And this is, this is true of, of, you know, technology, but it's also true of thinking of, of in, in the cognitive realm. You know, one of the one of the precursors that led to the development of, of red teaming was a, a team that the Israelis created in their military intelligence group that we talk about called Ipsha Mistabra, which is Aramaic for on the contrary, the opposite may be true. And when I was writing my last book and I was talking to the to one of the heads of Ipsha Mistabra, he said, you know, the secret to our success is that our analysts in this group are not judged by how often they're right they're judged by how deeply they get the rest of the organization to think. Because if they were being judged by how often they were right, they would pull punches. They would be, they wouldn't, th the job of this group is to challenge the thinking of Israeli military mm -hmm. intelligence. So if you want people to challenge the thinking of an organization, they can't be safe. They can't, they can't be afraid mm -hmm. to speak up. And it's, it's that ability to create that space where it's, which it sounds exactly like what you're talking about in a different arena where people have the ability to try new things, to throw things out there, to challenge hypotheses. And it's the challenge that's rewarded, mm -hmm. not the outcome. You're, you're never, it's very rare that organizations, particularly the larger they get, that they either hold that philosophy, um, they typically don't reward risk, right? right. There's very mm -hmm. few large organizations that reward risk. The ones that seem to be titans of industry that, almost embed this into their values. Amazon are famously known for failing more than most people at most things, right? Yep. And I have this view of like, one of our fundamental values is we outfail the competition. Like our job is like, in our DNA, we say we wanna outfail. And it's a bit of a sport, a sport analogy. You know, uh, the Michael Jordans of the world have missed more shots than anyone mm -hmm. else but that's because they've achieved greatness. But I think um, the romantic in me sees, you know, winning teams of having this philosophy. But if you look across business, particularly emerging giants, they always have a deep rooted respect for new things, but then they right. you have to have the right systems and processes to mean they aren't attached to those ideas. One of the things I was speaking to the team about earlier was people are blown away by this idea that, um, you know, giant tech companies, will buy, spend hundreds of millions on an app that has tens of millions of users, seemingly very successful, and then just end the company. People yep. are blown away by that idea. But for me, it makes all the sense in the world because their mission, to everybody else, that's like seemingly successful business. To them, it doesn't move the needle. So mm -hmm. they, they're about being intentional and focused, but they are willing to spend hundreds of millions on an experiment. And like, that's why they will continue probably to dominate, to monopolize and consolidate because they have 
stronger values that make you effective at business today. And and to me, that, that shows an appreciation of the world we're now living in from a business perspective. It's what we're talking about with AI and with disruption. It's this complex environment we live in. And we talk about VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, but it's this complexity. And if you're operating in complexity, there are no answers. So you have to create hypotheses. You have to experiment. And if test you create that safe to fail environment where your people can test and learn and prove or disprove, then that's how you get greatness. You probe, you sense, respond. And we work a lot with Dave Snowden, that Kneving framework of understanding these types of problems you're facing. And the majority today are complex. And I don't think many of the bigger, larger organizations understand that yet. They're seeing it on the daily, on the daily news feed. They're seeing AI. They're seeing what LinkedIn's telling them. But I still don't think it seems to have sunk in because they're not changing their approach and they're certainly not changing their thinking, which is what, where we try and focus on helping. Well, it's what Oliver said about, you know, they don't reward risk, right? Yeah. And, you know, to me, the biggest proof that an organization doesn't reward risk is if they're bringing in McKinsey or Bain or Deloitte to tell them what to do, because that's the safe route. Because even if it's wrong, it's got their stamp on it, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I Marcus does this question, this conversation, I was talking to the CEO of a large company and I was challenging him. I said, why are you, you have 300 people on your team who have the word strategy in their title. Why are you bringing in McKinsey to develop strategy for you? And he said, because there's, it's a win-win for me. If yeah. they tell me something new and it works, I get credit for a successful program. If they're wrong and it fails, it's their fault. And I don't get blamed because who's going to fault me for hiring McKinsey? No, no one is, no one is fired for hiring McKinsey, but you, you can yeah. certainly be fired for hiring the disruptive thinker that yep. will tell you what you're great at and tell you what you're not. Like there yeah. has to be. Or being that thinker yourself as a leader. <laughs> yeah. You could get fired for being fired. that disruptive thinker yourself, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I also think sector by sector, I think we're in a place, I have certain biases in the sense that um, I've often worked in media marketing technology services, um, generally on the more forward thinking sectors broadly. So I have these biases, yeah. but we often service very conservative sectors and, and you are certainly not um, rewarded for trying anything new. You know, I, I remember for the longest time, six years ago, we would say to companies, you know, you should pay attention to TikTok. And the world would go, yeah, it's this kids thing. My, you know, my kids are on it. It's just come out of musically. It's, it's for kids. Say, so, well, when you look at the data, it's not actually the kids. 70% of the audience are over 25. Like you have a view. It's certainly got, you know, a lot of content that's relevant for kids. It's trivialized because it's built on, um, you know, young people, trends, dancers and such. Um, so 90% of people ignored us until one of their competitors or someone else did something and got the kind of disproportionate or outweighted results. Um, and the 10% that did pay attention to us are now winning, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just that innovation and, and disruption isn't always like the most fringe technology or the 20th right. horizon revolution. Yeah. It can be that, you know, where is attention now? Where is opportunity now? And we have this, this thesis. We've got this kind of term we're playing around with internally. And we say the gap between now and next is closing. It's a bit of a marketeer statement. We are like marketeers. We can be full of bullshit sometimes. So we can speak <laughs> in terms. However, but it makes sense. Yeah. And the gap between now and next is closing. And we try and look at our lens or our value add to our partners as how can we help you now? Here's a whole mandate of things that you could do and should do. How can we help you next? 
And like, that's the framework, this now and next, what we're trying to embed in our philosophy of a value add as um, advisors to companies. This is Gordy House, skate to where the puck's going to be. (laughs) Yeah. Famous Canadian hockey player. It's, but you know, it's, it's really an important concept. You know, he was famously asked, what's your secret to winning? He says, I skate to where the puck is going to be. Yeah. Not where it is. Yeah, it's having that foresight, isn't it? And if you do that analysis, if you're testing those hypotheses, it's going to allow you to future-proof, to future-see, and your people to understand where they need to be at the right time. And that's that enablement and empowerment that we, we often don't see enough of. You talked about some of these organizations, obviously marketing, front-leading, front others not so much. Have you done any work with large public sectors? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it can be painful at times. We know. (laughs) I talk about private markets. If I start talking about um, public markets, government initiatives, I can extrapolate and say, wow, that's, you know, um, that's really offensive, actually. It's it's (laughs) It's a whole new level of offense. (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, you know, I'm curious, you know, you talked about the different, you know, working with the, 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 you know, companies like Apple and Amazon and then working with more conservative companies. How do you challenge the more conservative companies to get out of their comfort zone? Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. I think even the most conservative business in the world, there's part of their self-image that wants to do interesting new things. That's a universal truth. So there's never usually a shortage of willingness to do those things. Um it's usually finding the right incentive, building the right business cases, and actually making compromises on what challenges or problems you're going to tackle. So I'll, I'll give you one good example. A lot of our programs with conservative organizations is before they may have a specific ask of us. We want to promote this product or we want to promote this service, help us come up with a marketing plan to do so. And our job often is before we take that step, we, we usually take a step back and say, can we be the naive voice in the room? Let's spend some time with your teams. We want to spend three oh, or four weeks that. with you. And we just we just want to stress test your thinking. And, you know, at the end of this process, we're either going to find out what enablers or blockers exist from helping you do the things you want to do. And then we can be a bit more, um, we can be a lot more practical about how we then deliver this together. So for us, our, our first step is we run six sessions with a company. We've actually tried to create codify it as a program, um, but it's quite a loose program. We pick three goals that they want to do. We pick eight stakeholders that are contributors to that, and we go have and ask questions. And our job is simply to listen. We go away, rationalize it, and we come up with a plan that is here are like eight things you can take away. And if you never work with us again, you know, hopefully you've either got more conviction to your point earlier in what we've said, like you're doing the right things, um, or there's a new way of thinking here. There's some new initiatives or programs or projects that you could try out. So we're very much, as a marketing business, we probably look more like consultants at problems because I think our value add is trying to probably be like beyond marketing because mm-hmm. marketing is this omnipresent thing that can do so much. It can do wonders for organizations. But I think in isolation, any of these initiatives um, never reach their full potential. Like if you, if you as an organization aren't thinking of the broader context, you'll never truly do your best work. And I think the, the best thing in conservative organizations, to go back to your question, you can do is figure out a way to bring as many stakeholders with you. And that often means going slower than you would like. So our job with conservative organizations, we usually go slower. 
Our commercial motives and our want is to move fast, but sometimes just taking the time to truly understand an organization is what you actually need to A, build trust and build the authority to be able to drive through an initiative, but B, put you in a better position to empathize. Like, I don't know the blockers. I can assume most companies are the same, right? Everybody's like, finance team is stopping me doing what I want to do. Uh, legal <laughs> team is super annoying. Uh, I see. Stop providing. Yeah. CEO knows nothing about marketing. These are universal truths, right? Generally, yeah. so, <laughs> similar blockers. But that's our that's our process. I love that the naive voice in the room. Yeah, that is such a powerful concept. That's a very red teamy sort of concept. You know, if if you look back into back in the 1950s, a psychologist uh, Ash. Who, whose work led to the development of the concept of groupthink. He, he, he figured out that in a controlled setting, if you have one person in a room who gives a different answer than the group, even if it's a wrong answer, it enables everyone else to think for themselves. And so being that, that, that naive voice is asking simple, obvious questions that people aren't willing or able to ask themselves and I think that if I'm imagining that when you're doing that, that half the people in the room, if not more, are also starting to ask themselves questions that they haven't asked. Mm-hmm. Or haven't been been afraid not to ask, you know? Yeah, there's, there's the enablers of like setting the precedence that it's okay. Amazon have a really interesting yeah. philosophy where, you know, the, the leader of the group, the most senior mm-hmm. figures last. That's a really simple process you can adopt in a meeting that kind of enables the right types of habits and behaviors to allow more people to contribute and not influence the group, right? With the most authoritative voice, let's say. Um, Like we've been through this process ourselves. We've just gone, we actually stress test our own thinking. So if you said to me, why do you exist? Like our why, we say, you know, we keep brands at the forefront of what's possible. Actually, um, so if you went to me, well, why does that matter? Like stress test that, I'm going, well, because the you know the world is changing and you know the mm-hmm. unprecedented op- like change means unprecedented opportunity. So being at the forefront of that is like a, a huge lean in. And then they'll go like, well, how do you do it? So it's like going through the really simple basic questions and stress testing thinking is so important, um, particularly early on in any foundational relationship. And um, I think having the humility to know what you don't know and bring out outside counsel, we do it. We're a very capable business. I'm biased, but I think we're the best in the world at marketing. Um, That said, we bring in other people to either fill in gaps or stress test our own thinking. It's really important. I've seen like world-class design outfits, like designers that are incredible at creating visual art, bring in other designers to do their design, right? That's I think it's so important that you have these collective voices that can shape the best answers and isn't that true consultancy isn't that what consultancy was actually developed for expertise that you don't have and you bring that in when you need it to build your own expertise and and fill a problem or solve a problem that you don't have and i think you know we've seen that dilution by the big groups you know charlatan behavior selling everything that they don't really have the promise to deliver but I think, as you said, Oliver, having that capability and I think having the humility internally to recognize you need that. And we've done that, haven't we, recently, Bryce? We, we've mm-hmm. created a Circle community and we brought a consultant in from Circle to help us really understand how to set it up. And it's paid huge dividends. Mm-hmm. And when we told someone the other day about it, they were like, that thing you said the other day, did you actually do that or were you just saying that? We're like, no, we actually did it because it was worth the investment and, and it's proven itself. 
So I think that's a really smart thing out there for leaders listening. If you don't know, ask your people if they don't know and recognize the fact they don't. Search the skill set you require and find the actual core capable individual or group out there who are the best at doing what they do. Yeah, there was two um, there was two things that really resonated on that topic with me that changed the way I think about, um, you know, my natural inclination is to try and like do a lot of stuff myself or try and find the answer myself. But um, I have to resist that because it was, you know, the idea uh, of you only have to make a few good decisions. Like if you can if you make a few good decisions every year you will do really well as an organization. Mm -hmm. You don't need to make lots of good decisions. And I remember hearing about um, venture capitalist Chamath, early Facebook um, engineer, um, ran a pretty successful fund, got a big social following. Uh, And he says he pays a consultant when he needs to learn about climate tech. He will spend, pay a McKinsey or so, like nine months to just, and pay them way too much to bring in some world leading experts and curate him an event so that he can make better decisions. Mm-hmm. They'll create him a program. So he comes nine months in and he knows climate tech better than 99.9% of the world because he spent however many tens of millions curating the world's most authorities to come speak with him. But the upside of him making a good decision at the sort of level he's operating is astronomical, right? So Absolutely. I, th- I think that's really important to not try and be everything to everyone. Um, but just really leaning into the things you're great at and recognizing where you need help. Well, it's really interesting what you say there, Oliver, because that to me is an appropriate use of McKinsey because what what he's hiring them for is not to tell him what to do or make the decision. He's hiring them to bring together the experts who can educate him. And it's that's that is Marcus says that's the appropriate role of, of a consultant. I always like to share, you know, Andrew Carnegie famously said that he wanted on his tombstone, here lies a man who knew how to surround himself with people who people who knew more than he did. And that's that's the appropriate role. It's not outsourcing decision making, it's not outsourcing thinking. That's our motto is don't outsource thinking. He's not outsourcing thinking to McKenzie, he's using them to bring him insights so he can think. And that's that goes back to what we were talking about with AI, I think. I mean, the thing that I've been preaching for for at least five years is that is that most people are missing the point, the, the opportunity with AI. The opportunity with AI is not to replace human thinkers. It's to, as a force multiplier for mm-hmm. human decision-making because there's no human on the planet who can see patterns, process large amounts of data, f- draw meaningful conclusions from that the way that, that an AI can. But then using that as an input to your decision-making as a human being is the real opportunity, I think, not letting the machine make the decision for you. Yeah, I, you know what? That's that's been my, and I will play devil's advocate to that. I will challenge yeah. that because that's been my view and I think it's the most logical, but I have such a profound change. My friend was playing with a, a generative art tool. And yeah. his view, he, he, his view, and I kind of shared, that was that, you know, this will aid product photography. You can start to develop mood boards based on prompts, you know. I'll make a description of what I want to see, and it's used as inspiration to aid the creative process. And I'm speaking about a very specific user case. He showed me what he created, and he basically said into a language model, design a uh, new British fashion collection through the vehicle of like the royal family. And the product photographer that developed off the back of this 
slightly off, but you go, that is phenomenal. And that would cost Burberry, you know, it would cost Burberry hundreds of thousands to curate that caliber of aesthetic and shot mm-hmm. that is truly transformative. So my part was it was going to aid, enable us to be better. I see a year from now, it's almost product photography is redundant. Product photography doesn't actually need to exist anymore. So that's where my view has completely transformed and gone, there will be sectors that are just eliminated. And it reminded me a bit of a like, um, I think of just general stuff about a lot of law. A lot of law Mm -hmm. by definition, I think ChatGPT4 took the bar test and 90% of the time it, it, it completes the bar test. Like, that's like insane and profound. So I think if you think of, you can spend five years at Harvard, you go into your first uh, your first law firm. The first thing you will probably do at that point is you'll spend three years just reviewing contracts and Apple replacing words. That's no longer needed, right? Right. You know, so I start to go as much as I go. I share that opinion for the majority of roles, responsibilities, but I do genuinely think we are going to make some things extinct. I oh, absolutely agree. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. I don't think we'll make them as extinct as quickly because it's. Um, I think it's. I think he's called Ray Amara. He has this really interesting quote where he says, um, "Technology, um, what is it? Technology. We overestimate what technology will do in the short term, but underestimate it in the long." Yeah, like that's and the it's... that's kind of like the thesis here. Like we're maybe a bit bullish on some things that might not truly transform, but there'll be other things that just eradicate entire sectors. So, like I'm, I'm trying to because as a as a i suppose an advisor to lots of different types of organizations trying to think through the art of possible and the the pros and cons and all these possibilities is like really fascinating thought territory see i think i agree with you completely i think there's going to be areas that are absolutely replaced and i could totally see that fashion line being developed but if you ask that same ai what should our split of our fashion portfolio be five years from now between these different three different market sectors. I think that a human decision maker is going to make a better decision informed by AI when it comes to that sort of strategic thinking rather than... Let's try it. Let's run an experiment right now and come back in five years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, you know what? I think by like the way you're right, I think there's, there's a part that goes, it levels up the average. So AI... Yes, AI, great way of thinking it. And actually, it puts a distinction for excellence, originality, and thinking that doesn't currently exist yet. That's got to be derived from somewhere. It's probably not the machine that will do that. However, what I would say is um, I had a, a renewed sort of definition a few years ago, maybe five years ago, around what creativity is. And creativity is like the foundation of most innovation. Like It's been thought into sure. the world through... And, and most people's view on creativity is it's uh, originality. They conflate originality and creativity. They're not the same thing. Creativity is bringing together different sources of inspiration and creating something new. So by definition, if you think of creativity, it's basically what machine learning models are doing right now. There yep. is it's, bring, it's piecing together different inspiration and creating something new. So the human side of me that wants to value my own skills and like I'm resistant. There's every part of me is going, a machine can't think like me or do certain things better than me. But then I just kind of go, yeah, it probably can. <laughs> like <eventually>. <laughs> <laughs> Acceptance <laughs> of reality. Yeah, 
maybe eventually, it probably is going to, but maybe not super quick. I, I might just have to admit and concede. <laughs> no, no, no. Don't go gently into that good night. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we will dive deeper into this. Hey, folks. Bryce here. If you're listening to this and you're liking what you're hearing and you're wondering, am I a red team thinker? We have an easy way for you to find out. Just go to the show notes, click on the link there to our free assessment to find out if you are a red team thinker and what you can do to think more effectively, to lead more effectively, and to make better decisions faster in your complex world. Like I said, the link is in the show notes, or you can simply go to our website, redteamthinking.com. Check it out. I can't wait to see how you score. Welcome back. So, you know, I, I, I was thinking during the break, Oliver, you talked about, about how people are resistant to change, afraid of change. And I think the reason why I do what I do for a living is because I love change. And I, I love it to the point that I was a journalist for 20 years. And, and people used to ask me when I was a journalist, you know, why are you in this low paying field when you could do so many other things? And I said, because I don't have the attention span to do anything else. That used to be the great thing about being a journalist is that every day you'd come to work and, and uh, have a new, new, new topic to cover, a new, a new discipline to learn. But journalism obviously has changed a lot. And, and we were talking during the break, you, you, you mentioned Oliver that you were at, at South by recently and, and we're, so a lot of discussion about how AI was going to impact journalism. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, definitely. It's really fascinating. So South by, you know, usually has like the shining topic. And of course, this year, last year was NFTs and crypto and the blockchain. This year it was AI. Um, AI is usually a running theme of the of um, South by. But one of the more interesting discussions I, I landed upon was around journalism. Um, and obviously, journalism is, is, is kind of this art that has been called into question because a lot of journalism today isn't journalism. It's creating headlines and the, the kind of new commercial models that exist around content. Journalism. Content. It's content, actually, is a better framing. Absolutely. It's content, not journalism. Um, and actually, when you think of that, that juxtaposition, the, the room for journalism or the want for real journalism is probably stronger than it's ever been, right? I think there's a real, there's a real want. One of the conversations that went on in South by that I found interesting was two opposing views of, you know, how will AI affect journalism at mass? And I, I think there was a consensus that journalists will move away from being writers to editors in many respects, a lot of the desk research will be done much faster so that you can achieve and write more. A lot of the first drafts and the writing will be done by the machine, right? And actually as organizations, if you think of like editorial control, you can start to overlay tone of voice, brand call outs. There's some real, as an organization, it's transformative to think you can start to have a controlled narrative around independent journalism. So the optimists in the room say as businesses, we can now run way more efficient, achieve a lot more, produce more content, and in turn, commercialize that. Then there was the devil's advocate about, well, does that continue to erode journalism, right? Journalism. And, and like my takeaway with that is, absolutely, I think journalism has already been on a decline. I think we see less and less of journalism and more content. Yep. 
And I think that's just going to increase. However, my view is there's always a counterculture. I think the demand for real journalism, and actually if you say as a journalist, I can now be more efficient, I can do my research faster, I can do my drafts faster, I can get things reviewed quicker. If all these things can happen, what can journalists do? They can spend more time investigating, thinking of unique narratives, doing all the things that currently a robot cannot do. So like, I think the overall conversation around AI and journalism was somewhat of a positive one, but there are risks associated with like commoditization. And, and actually there's a big ethical question in journalism. If AI is powering a lot of the media we consume, will that inherently have bias? I think most things inherently have bias, but it is one of those big ethical debates where you go, how do I feel about this? You know, what should we do? Well, I, I love this conversation because it, it, I love it as a former journalist and I love it because this to me is a great case study that, it, that gets into the, the challenge and the opportunity of artificial intelligence. So for, first of all, as a former journalist who I quit journalism in 2013 for the very reason that journalism by that point was shifting away from what I had signed up for yeah. to content creation. And I, you know, I spent my whole career at daily newspapers and, you know, daily newspapers went from valuing deep analytical pieces, which is what I won a lot of awards for, to post this is faster than, than, than <laughs> anyone else can on Twitter. Doesn't matter if it's right, we'll fix it later. And yeah. so obviously AIs are going to beat journalists or, or what passes for journalism <laughs> today. Um, because the skill set of, of the typical journalist is a lot lower today than it was when I started in the business. Um, that's obvious. But this, this is the interesting thing that you say, is that there still is a demand for real journalism. It's not being met by any of the mainstream media companies um, because it's not profitable compared to just churning out content. And it's unfortunate because I do think that they just haven't figured out how to, how to do that, to, how to monetize it. But this gets into... Yeah a fundamental thing about AI. So as I said, my what attracted me to journalism and why I considered myself a successful journalist was because what I did was not report, it was to provide context. Mm -hmm. My best pieces, the pieces that I won awards for were the result of spending weeks or months talking to every person who was involved in a major issue, hearing different perspectives and then synthesizing that into something that says, this is how this situation looks and here's the different points of view and here's the implications of that. And when I think about that, I think about a few years ago before he passed away, I was doing some work with Paul Allen and he asked me to come to Seattle and spend some time at all of his different institutes. And I spent a few days at his AI Institute, which is one of the top AI institutes in the world. And I was struggling to understand the challenge and opportunities of AI. And I was talking to his, his lead scientist. And I, I said, you know, what, what, what are the limits of AI? And we, you know, Seattle. So behind me in the conference room is a, is a beautiful picture of a woman kayaking on Puget Sound. And he said, here's, here, here, here's the opportunity and the limits of AI. He said, right now, our best AI, we could feed it that picture. And it could tell you that that is a picture of a 31-year-old woman kayaking at these geo-coordinates in Puget Sound, probably 
on this date and time because it can it can find the patterns of this to know where this is where you know looking through an image library of of, of hundreds of of millions of images it can it can look at the angle of the sun to figure out the time and and the date it can it can look at this woman's facial features to come up with an estimate of her age he said can do all of that and if you think about it a human being couldn't do most of those things however he said if we then say what happens if we flip her upside down the ai has no idea and yet a 5 year old could tell you well she's going to drown if she doesn't figure out how to right her her kayak and that is about context mm-hmm. it's it's about the others are about understanding and processing data but the latter is about context and that's where i think ai struggle and is struggle and is going to continue to struggle for some time is but, but isn't that where social media struggles we so often see images quick sound bites mm-hmm. where people are triggered by it we see a response to it but the context isn't provided. And we can all post something that will people respond to, but when you provide the context, they go, ah, I didn't realize it was all about that because that's what journalism now becomes. It's those sound bites that get responses and get reactions and get hits and likes. And we see that in social media. Yeah, I, I think what you're, what you're both describing is really fascinating because I think we talk about challenge opportunity there. Um, you're describing the biggest opportunity, right? One of the big conversations around what is the distinction in AI models? Everyone is going to have the same foundational language. Mm-hmm. What's going to be the deciding factor is what's the context you overlay? What's the unit right. data set that gives you advantages? And I think that's the battle going on right now of figuring, okay, there's some dominant language models and the tech giants are now competing for the dominant base language. But where the emerging winners will come, and these are winners, pre-existing businesses that take advantage, but also new emergents, I think they start to look at these language models and overlay that context. And it was interesting, Bryce, you spoke about journalism, and it got me thinking, like, everything you're saying is true, but what I've seen is, is like, our definitions of these things change wildly. Because if you think of the emergence of, like, people that aren't journalists but write incredibly well and now create a substack on a topic that they're passionate about, right? Yes. And like charge for it. So the commercial mm-hmm. fragmentation is like part of the story. I just think how we consume news, where we go for news, where we take inspiration, I think that's all evolving at the same time. So I think yeah. these definitions of what, you know, you experienced as a, you, you know, elite journalist, I just think that's evolving and, um, you know, great talent is probably, you know, can't morally stay in tune with just creating content. So they like do other things. <laughs> I think that's probably yeah. true. I mean, that's, you know, I, I, I think, I mean, when I left journalism, I was certainly not the only person that I knew who was a, who was a well-regarded journalist who decided, you know, this is, this is not the same thing anymore. And I'm going to find another use for, for what I do. Adapting to change. And that's the whole point, isn't it? And, you know, we spoke a lot about AI today and I, I, I really want to get to my passion and that's people. You know, we talked about AI, we talked about social media, we understand how we've been on this technological evolution over the last couple of decades and we're often seduced by this technology, but at the heart of all of this is people. And we talked at the break, Oliver, and you talked about, you know, you brought a hundred new staff on, new people in your team recently. What is it that you look for in people? What is it you look for in yourself as a human individual surrounded by all this tech and this AI and this fast moving complex world? 
you've got some great success behind you. You've got some great innovation and future thinking with your companies and flight story. So the heart of all this for me is always people. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing that I always focus on. What do you focus on from a people perspective? Yeah, I think there's two parts for me. The, the definition of a company is a group of people. So I think when we detach ourselves from that premise, we lose ourselves. It's so important that our orientation is anchored to we're only as good as our people. Um, and then the second part of me goes, what do I personally find fulfilling? I reflect on things I've achieved. And unless you're doing it with people or you're working towards something with people you like, you trust, you respect, you learn from, it's not rewarding. So there's two lenses in which I view this going. I have a deep respect for the importance of bringing together great people to try and achieve great things. Then there's a selfish part of me that goes, well, I know my own motivation is like doing stuff with people I like, which then changes the way I think about hiring. So my foundational philosophy in it, I've, I've thought about this a lot as we start to bring in more people into the organization mm-hmm. is like, what can we do to enrich the questions I ask is, how do we create a place that's really rewarding for everybody? And, and people in work have very similar needs. I think if you took a straw consensus, what do we all want? We all, we all want a sense of forward motion. We all want to feel secure. We all want to be respected and rewarded. Um, and we all want to know that the things in our contributions mean something. So if I, if I think of that, we have a responsibility as an organization to build really meaningful values be very clear at communicating what we do, create environments that reward people and fulfillment and rewards can be like remuneration, cash, but it can also mean other things, experiences, development, all of those things. And we have to put that in a framework and rationalize it and write it down and just be so disciplined around those people policies and who we look for. And like the way I've started viewing flight stories, we're not for everybody. Our company mission decides the, the team that we build. And our company mission is do unthinkable things in marketing and communication and really change the world around us and, you know, do the best possible work. That requires a certain mindset. So we formed a set of values around that mission. And then we also now built the systems around those values to mean that that's the filter in which we hire people. It's the filter in which we reward people and it's the filter in which we show progression in the company. Mm-hmm. Like they're the frameworks we've spent about a year building. And as you mentioned there, we're bringing in a lot of uh, new people from different backgrounds and, you know, different history and different ways of working. So my view is that unless we are crystal clear and where this like magnetic core, when a hundred new people join the business, we become like the hundred new people unless we are just this, anchor point so our job is to like be unapologetic and we made decisions as a business very early we're going to be office first when the world's going remote we believe that we believe in community doing stuff together we recognize that there's like loads of good stuff about being remote but for us it's not right because of what we want to achieve we decided like a whole host of policies off the back and just being really intentional around these things so yeah to me people People is the foundation of who you are. Selfishly, I love people. I want to be around people. I learn from people. My best experiences are always shared. So I think about that a lot. And then when I look for people, I've got this like, someone asked me this the other day. They said, what's one thing that you would, if you were like, what's your number one like hiring tip? And I thought about that. It's like really hard to distill it down into one. That's a toughie. Yeah. One thing. And I went... Hire optimistic people. Because, like, I go in a room and I go, like, I like being around optimists. It's, like, really nice. The person, 
And it's not that there isn't room for pessimism or isn't room for, you know, being a negative voice. But I just go, if there's one thing, if you bring together loads of optimistic people, it's self-fulfilling in so many respects. So I went, if I was to give one rule, it's like, fill the room with optimists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, what you're talking about is, is creating a culture, right? Yeah. You have, you're building a culture and, you know, this goes back to, to Deming's favorite, famous dictum that cult, culture eats strategy for breakfast every day. So if you yeah. don't invest in that culture, if you don't build that culture, if you don't decide what the culture of your organization is going to look like and then, and then inf- enforces a strong word, I would say model and reinforce that culture. You're right. You're going to be the one that's changed, not, not the... You know, you know what's fascinating, Bryce? You've said the, the culture strategy for business. And I've heard that said so many times. And I never actually connected with what it meant. Like, I, it was only until the pretext of what I was just saying, how you reframe it. And I went, oh, I get it now. <laughs> I actually know what it means now. And it took, I've heard it so many times. But that was the first time I went, I get what, I actually get what that phrase means. Because you've done it. Because you've created that, as you said, that magnetic hub that people come in and they're drawn to it. They get it. And yeah, I love that we're unapologetic about who and what we are. And what that gives people is clarity. And the organization we work with, you so often speak to people and they just don't know. They're unsure of the value. They've seen the values on the wall, but they never see them lived. They're unsure of the intent. They're unsure of the direction. The strategies are meaningless mumbo jumbo. And I think if you create clarity across all spectrum of what we're talking about here for people remuneration where you're working when we're working what do we do what do we stand for that means so much because it brings that alignment that everybody can form a tribe under and you get that tribalism of behavior that's what creates i think true capability as you said people are company and that's what the company is you know i'm i'm a i'm a perhaps counterintuitively a big fan of Malcolm X and, and, and find that he actually has a lot of amazing business quotes, though, though that's not how they were originally intended. One of my favorite quotes from Malcolm X is, if you don't stand for something, you'll go for anything. Yeah. And I think yeah. that applies to business and to organizations in a way that you just described, Oliver. If you don't stand for something, you'll go for anything, which means if you don't know what what you're about and what matters, like you, you've made a decision about w- working in a physical office because that matters. And that gives you that gives you a, a structure that organizations that don't have an opinion are gonna are gonna vacillate on. Yeah, yeah, and I, you mentioned as well uh, there, Marcus. Like you said, tribe. We say this a lot. Of we're, we're trying to build a cult and a code of philosophy that will mean we're exceptional at what we do. And cult is like such a trigger word because yeah. of all the negative connotations, but. The manifestation for that in a healthy way is you ask someone who just joins our business in six months and they sound a little like me in what we do. So what's flight mm-hmm. story? And if we can achieve that in six months time through That's our powerful. common language, that to me will be one of the biggest wins because I, I think so few organizations ever achieve that, particularly as they scale. So that'll mm-hmm. be a big win for us. But you have to preserve your dissenters too, because if you don't, you'll over time become complacent and, and fall victim to group that naive oh. voice in the room. Yeah, yep. it was, it's interesting when you say dissent. Um, I, I saw a, a LinkedIn post relatively recent and they were saying how in organizations, we don't value the, like this, the, the awkward person that's like completely just challenging being a bit of a pessimist. So a lot of the things I'm saying that when I talk in generalisms, they're like good foundations 
but yeah, you have to have those appreciations for the devil's advocate in the room, <laughs> like the devil's advocate, Absolutely. the person that's doing the unusual thing that opens up a new set of possibilities. Right. I agree. And you don't have to listen to them. You don't have to go with what they say, yeah, yeah, but you yeah. have to, you know, I, one of the things I share, one of my favorite books, which is behind me here is, uh, uh, defeat into victory by by Field Marshal Viscount Slim, who who I is I think the the best British military leader of World War II, and you know one of the things that Slim did that is amazing is when he when he took command of of Commonwealth forces in in the India Burma theater, he brought he 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 telegrammed one of his old classmates from Sandhurst, who was now a brigadier general, and he said. I want you to come and join my staff. And, and he said, great, what's my, what's, what's my staff position going to be? He says, you're not going to have a position. He says, your position on my staff is for the rest of the war. Every time I come up with a plan, a strategy, I want you to tell me why it's going to fail. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Slim writes in this book that for the next three years in which he, he's the only person who fights a successful ground war against the Japanese in history. He never fails to listen to the input of this guy, mm-hmm. but he never abandons a plan once because of what he says, but he also never fails to modify it based on it makes his. The, makes the better plan. Exactly, right. isn't it? That's and the I whole think point. that's the key is you don't have to, you don't have to go with what the, the, the negative Nelly says, but you need to think about the questions they're asking. Yeah. I love Very that. powerful. Yeah, really powerful. Excellent. Great stuff. Such a pleasure to have you on the show, Oliver. Yeah, thank you, guys. Yeah, really enjoyed this chat. I'm kind of pumped. I was fed up of hearing my own voice. I'm a little You were tired <laughs> when you came on, weren't you? And look at you now, yeah, smiling yeah. and happy. It's a good conversation is like a, an espresso, right? As we said, it's all about good people and good conversation. But no, brilliant, Oliver. Really, really appreciate you taking the time. I know you've got a full schedule of doing this often. So it's been a real pleasure to have you on The Thinking Leader with us. Thanks, Jens. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode. There, you'll also find a link to our free assessment. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.